Good morning, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter Audiocast. I am your host, Dr. M, and I'm going to be going over issues number 48 from November 15th and issue number 50 from November 29th. And the discussions this time revolve around uh, biological clocks and aging, as well as breast milk and breastfeeding. So first, let's start with a few free thoughts. We live every day, but do we really live and observe? Do you take time to see the beauty in the leaves and offer gratitude for them? Regardless of your spiritual nature, do you sense that there is a greater force out there guiding the outside world? I love to think that when you drill down in either direction, as far as you can go, there is nothing but space. Think of looking downward by factors of 10. At some point, you are inside of an atom looking at quarks and really just energy. How can my physical being be just energy? It's tough to ponder, yet that is exactly what physicists do every day. Flip that narrative on its head and go outward into space. At some point, there is a question of anything being there. Crazy, huh? Yep, we are living in energy spheres. Thus, I choose to marvel at birth and life every day. It is a gift to be alive and to be an American where I am allowed to do so. Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman, is a book that I'm reading that I absolutely love. I highly encourage it. So corresponding with newsletter number 48, I happened to do a podcast with Dr. Tracy Shafazada, and it was a wonderful conversation about uh, episode you know, number nine and discussing all of the work around breast milk, human milk, oligosaccharides, and what happens to the baby's gut microbiome based on this. Dr. Shafazada is a nutritional scientist, a speaker, an author who has over 15 years of experience in scientific communications and life science research. Prior to serving as the director of scientific communications at Evolve Biosciences, she led product development and research services at various startups, including Lipomics Technologies, Tethys Bioscience, and Metabolone, Inc., Dr. Shafzada received her PhD in nutritional biology from UC Davis while studying intestinal development of folate metabolism in newborns. You know, during that podcast, we spent the hour discussing the maternal info microbiome with respect to maternal breast milk, human milk sugars, and childhood outcome. Evolve Biosystems has produced a probiotic with excellent science to help guide us in a new therapeutic discovery. We head to the beginnings of disease onset when the infant is only starting to take his or her first breaths. And to me, this was a really interesting conversation. I hope you have the time to listen to it. So let's move into this week's newsletter. We're going to discuss now biological clock and aging. What do we really know about aging? The word aging or biological aging is one of these really hotly used words or topics these days as people are trying to live longer based on modern technology. But, you know, we know that aging accelerates under chronic unremitting stress of various sources, including chronic high fat and sugar laden westernized diets, chronic chemical and drug exposure, or acute if it's a toxic load, chronic sedentary behavior, chronic mental stress or sadness, abuse, physical abuse, injury that is profound and much more. It is no wonder looking at the list that we are aging poorly now despite high quality medical interventions that can keep us alive. Thus, what does our biological clock say about our age versus the chronological clock of age, which is basically when you were born and to the time of now? Think of this as how old do you appear biologically or cellularly versus how old you really are in days. 
So let's look at a Nature Aging article. Quote, while many diseases of aging have been linked to the immunological system, immune metrics capable of identifying the most at-risk individuals are lacking. From the blood immunome of 1,001 individuals aged 8 to 96 years, we developed a deep learning method based on patterns of systemic-related inflammation. The resulting inflammatory clock of aging, called IAGE, tracked with multimorbidity, immunosenescence, frailty, and cardiovascular aging, and is also associated with exceptional longevity in centenarians. The strongest contrib contributor to IAGE was a chemokine, with the name CXCL9, which was involved in cardiac aging, adverse cardiac remodeling, and poor vascular function. Furthermore, aging endothelial cells in human and mice show loss of function, cellular senescence, and hallmark phenotypes of arterial stiffness, all of which are reversed by silencing CXCL9. In conclusion, we identify a key role of CXCL9 in age-related chronic inflammation and derive a metric for multimorbidity that can be utilized for the early detection of age-related clinical phenotypes. This comes from us in the Nature Aging article written by Syed, S-A-Y-E-D, et al. 2021. So, the group is using artificial intelligence, AI computing, to complete heroic data tasks to get us closer to understanding immune biology of biological aging that we see of as heart disease or neurodegenerative disease. The chemokine, known as CXCL9, is a major chemical signaling molecule involved in immune expansion in order to combat pathogens on a routine basis. It has recently been associated with multi-inflammatory syndrome from COVID with children. CXCL9 is an antimicrobial gene that is part of the chemokine superfamily that encodes secreted proteins involved in immunoregulatory and inflammatory processes. The protein encoded is thought to be involved in T-cell trafficking. And if you remember, T-cells are part of our adaptive immune system that help take information from macrophages or these uh, antigen-presenting cells, these cells we have in our body that are part of our immune system that take viruses, bacteria, pathogens, or different proteins in general, chew them up and present them on the cell surface, which then the T cell comes and learns from, and then goes down the road to educate B cells to make antibodies. So this whole process is involved in immune understanding of the outside world. The protein encoded is really involved in this T cell trafficking. So the encoded protein binds to this CXC motif called chemokine 3 and is a chemoattractant for lymphocytes or white blood cells, but not neutrophils. And this is interesting because CXCL9 is heavily involved in viral fighting capabilities, which turns out to be a big piece of COVID. When we think of aging by the various roots as stated above, then we must posit that if CXCL9 is involved to a large degree, then our behaviors must be triggering the immune cascade that needs lymphocyte type white blood cells to handle the damage from our lifestyle-induced inflammation. Therefore, what does the science say about this? So as I started digging into the literature, I found that a high-fat diet can trigger the CXCR family, including CXCL9, which then targets the activation of T cells and macrophages in the adipose tissue, otherwise known as fat cells, which then promote the activation of low-level inflammation throughout the local and systemic cellular pathways. 
This is one of the few mechanisms involved in driving obesity-laden fat cells to be inflamed and immunologically counterproductive to us. This comes from Kieran et al. 2021. And as always, all of these citations are in the newsletter if you want to click the links to actually read the articles. So, high-fat diets are those that are composed primarily of animal products, including grain-fed animal meats, dairy, coconut oil, and other processed oils and lard. In combination with large volumes of fiber-based vegetables and fruits, these fats seem to be benign based on what I understand in the literature. The problem appears to be driven by the types and combinations of fats and refined sugars more than the fat in and of itself. And this makes sense evolutionarily because it's highly likely that over time, we never consumed these refined processed carbohydrates coupled to high volumes of fat at the same time. So we didn't evolve to do this. We evolved to eat meat, vegetables, fruits when they're available in season or if we kill an animal. We've changed the narrative so much in how we consume food. So diabetes and insulin resistance have also been shown to be strong connector to CXCL9 chemokines, including CXCL9, excuse me, to CXCL chemokines, including CXCL9 via activation through bacterial dysbiosis and systemic lipopolysaccharides from bacterial cell walls. This is the fat sugar molecule that is the outside of the bacteria. Viruses are also part of this process. So diet induces these changes at the microbiome and systemic level. So when you think about this, the age reality of finding CXCL9 as a biomarker of aging makes a lot of sense when we find the upstream triggers of these issues highly associated with our lifestyle dysfunction of how we consume food that is disproportionately associated with comorbid disease. So people who are unhealthy by disease are unhealthy by age as well. They die younger and they look older. So it would make sense that a chemokine involved in T-cell uh, trafficking and involved in lymphocyte activation or white blood cell activation in response to dysfunctional diets and dysfunctional viruses and bacteria, the, the mechanisms make a lot of biological sense. So for me, seeing that IH found this, this marker makes a lot of sense. So, you know, when we look a little further, I think we're going to find out that CXCL9 is one of many issues involved in our aging. And we're going to learn more as the data evolves, and I'm going to be watching this stuff. I suspect, again, that all of these chemokines and cytokines and immune-based kinds are all going to be basically triggered by the same predisposition processes of dysfunctional diet, sedentary behavior, chemical stress, and the obvious players that we know of to be epidemiologically associated with disease. So what's the take-home point? You look at this stuff and you say, okay, biological aging is associated with a cell signaling molecule. So then we say, okay, standard high fat and sugar diet turns out that it, it is involved in turning on a cassette of innate immune-mediated signaling cells like CXCL9, which then recruit large volumes of T-cells and macrophages, leading to lots of local tissue inflammation that eventually lead to the major metabolic diseases that we see in America. Therefore, having CXCL9 as a possible surrogate marker of aging makes sense as, an inflam as inflammation is the main driver of early death for humans. Technical this was, but necessary to yet again guide us in our decision-making when the federal and state governments are not working to help us reduce human burdens of disease by curtailing the access to cheap, subsidized, sad-type foods. To think that we may be able 
be able to predict and educate individuals on death risk from infectious diseases like COVID and also chronic disease of aging like diabetes in advance would be amazing. One question I always ask, will the folks that have these risks listen or change their behavior with this prevention-based knowledge? The answer is I don't know, but I do thoroughly hope so. Section two, air pollution. We have long known that PM 2.5, or otherwise known as particulate 2.5 microns, is a problem for asthmatic persons. PM 2.5 stands for 2.5 micron-sized particle, that is the ability to enter the respiratory tract and settle deep into our lungs' smallest tubes and then translocate into the bloodstream through the alveolus. These chemicals cause local inflammation and can lead to further issues over time, especially in individuals with lung diseases like COPD or asthma. The mechanisms are being figured out, but appear to be activation of innate and local immune cascades that inflame local cells and tissues, causing a cascade of inflammation that we see as lung disease flares. Those persons with lung diseases act as canary in the coal mine for the rest of us with regards to health risk from pollution, much like a diabetic is in a window into refined carbohydrate-induced insulin resistance and inflammation for all of us. From an article, quote, air pollution in the form of PM 2.5 has been linked to adverse respiratory outcomes in children. However, the magnitude of this association in South Asia and sources of PM 2.5 that drive adverse health effects are largely unknown. This study evaluates associations between short-term variation in ambient PM 2.5 and incidence of pneumonia and upper respiratory infections among children in Dhaka, Bangladesh. We also perform an exploratory analysis of PM 2.5 source composition that is most strongly associated with health endpoints. We leverage data from health surveillance of children less than five years of age between 2005 and 2014 in Kamalapur, Bangladesh, including daily physician-confirmed diagnosis of pneumonia and upper respiratory infection. Twice-weekly, source-appointed ambient PM 2.5 measurements were obtained for the same period. Total PM 2.5 mass was associated with a modest increase in incidence of pneumonia, with a peak effect size two days after exposure. We did not identify a significant association between two PM 2.5 and an upper respiratory infection. Stratified and matching analyses suggested this association was stronger among days with ambient PM 2.5 had a higher mass percent associated with brick kiln and fugitive lead emissions. This study suggests that elevated ambient PM 2.5 contributes to increased incidence of child pneumonia and urban DACA, and that this relationship varies among days with a different source composition of PM 2.5. This comes from Sheris et al. 2021. So, what is the to-do in this situation? So, particulate matter 2.5 is not good for any of us, but clearly there is more problem associated with exposure when we're younger and possibilities of upper respiratory and pneumonia issues. So, one, as oxidative stress and innate immune activation are main pathogenic mechanisms following PM 2.5 exposure, consuming nutritious foods like omega-3 fatty acids and fish oil, colorful antioxidant fruits and vegetables can mitigate some of this damage. Wear a mask on poor air quality days when outside. Use high filter, excuse me, use high quality indoor HEPA filters and devices to clean your local air. Make sure to use your protective preventative medicines as directed if you have lung or other high-risk diseases. Also consider supplements to mitigate some of the oxidant damage as per your provider of care. 
I think of OPC or oligomeric proanthocyanidins here, as well as vitamins A, E, and C. However, nothing will ever beat out the synergies of high-quality vegetables and fruits in a good quality diet. Visit Dr. Weil's anti-inflammatory website for more direct information on dietary interventions that you can use. Section 3, Autism Prevalence. The Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network is a CDC-funded data mining program designed to estimate the number of children with autism spectrum disorders, or ASDs. The network has discovered an estimated prevalence of ASD at 36 out of 1,000 children in most New Jersey regions, but greater than 70 out of the 1,000 children in multiple school districts. The national average of ASD is thought to be less than 2%. The author stated, quote, when we focused on the district level, we recognized that many communities in our region, approximately one in five, including some of the largest, had autism spectrum disorder rates between 5% and 10%, said study co-author Josephine Shenuda, a project coordinator at the Rutgers New Jersey School of Medicine. These variations may reflect differences in the use of services or access to care. Larger districts may provide more services from a greater number of professionals or have additional resources for detection of care of ASD. It is also possible that parents of children with learning or developmental disorders relocate from small districts to large districts to maximize their children's educational attainment. End quote. The network data also noted that one in five New Jersey school districts had ASD estimates 5% or greater, and that ethnicity played a role with Hispanic children being less likely to be identified with ASD as compared to white and black classmates. Why this is the case remains to be figured out. So when I read this, I go, okay, whether it's 2 or 5%, we have a problem on massive proportions as the ASD instance is skyrocketing and is set to maximally tax therapeutic services moving forward unless we stem this trend. In our practice, we are struggling to find access to quality ABA therapists, which is the only truly beneficial and validated ASD behavioral service. These issues are only going to worsen unless we add more therapists as, we, as well as find a reversal of the ASD trend. Remember that a full 20% of ASD children are seemingly the result of maternal autoimmune antibodies directed against the developing brain of the child. Thus, we need to pour research dollars into the field of autoimmunity prevention and specifically that of women's disease. The study in Molecular Journal, or, excuse me, in Molecular Psychiatry from January of 2021 found that through machine learning, they could identify autoantibody biomarkers that were 100% associated with autism when found in a specific pattern. In other words, the mothers of autistic children with autoimmune antibodies targeted against certain proteins in the infant's developing brain in utero were noted in 100%. For a look at autoimmune avoidance, see the three-part newsletter series that I did in the past. You can get to it in the link in the, in the, in the newsletter online. Numbers 5, 4, and 3 in that order are the most important. I'll, order, I'll already record this stuff again in the future, but right now, um, just go look it up if you want to read more about it. Okay. Let's move on to letter number 50. So the free thoughts on this one was, uh, I stated, if you ever wanted to understand why fructose or better yet high fructose corn syrup is a net negative for health, then I highly encourage you to listen to the podcast that Dr. Peter Atia and Dr. Robert Lustig did on the Dr. Peter Atia show, The Drive. There's a link in the newsletter. This issue, we're going to talk about breast milk, breastfeeding, and learning and memory in general. So for the podcast, I recently interviewed Dr. E.A. Quinn, and we had a really awesome wide-ranging discussion on breast milk and the evolutionary perspective that it is related to as, and our children and our mothers. So that's podcast number 11 if you want to find it on Amazon or Apple. 
Dr. Quinn is a biological anthropologist with a specialty in human biology. Her research is broadly focused on understanding the ways in which human milk is an essential part of human biological variation and how such variation has been selected for by different ecological pressures. She's doing some really cool research, which her primary project is called uh, is at presently called Infancy at Altitude, a longitudinal both birth cohort study of ethnic Tibetan mothers and infants living in the Nubri Valley of Nepal. She is investigating the ways in which ecological pressures, in this case, the ecological pressures of hypoxia, low oxygen, chronic cold stress, and shorter growing seasons, as well as UV radiation infectious diseases, has on creating selective pressures for how human milk develops and how it translates into adaptive patterns of the child and child's growth. One of the major findings of her research was elevated milk fat in high-altitude sample samples compared to other previously studied human populations and lower levels of metabolic hormones than predicted based on maternal body composition. Breast milk is a magical human-derived food and medicine all wrapped up into one. The magnificence of human milk is on full display during the hour-long podcast, and I hope you have a chance to go listen to it. She is, she is quite exceptional. All right. So, breast milk is a miracle of evolution. That's what I titled this newsletter. After the birth of a child, a beautiful event occurs and provides a point of visceral connection physically and epigenetically between mom and her babe. That event is breastfeeding. Mother's milk is an evolutionary marvel whereby a mother dedicates part of her energy stores to her offspring for survival. She gives of herself literally and figuratively, even during periods of food scarcity. Over thousands of years, humans have evolved this dynamic and rich fluid to promote species survival in the context of our dependent selves as babies. We have massive brains needing large amounts of energy to grow, and mother's milk is a culmination of the species' learned process of survival. Human milk is the perfect, dynamic, personalized food for an infant to thrive. It is different for each mother-child dyad. It changes based on environment and human flux. It is, in simple terms, the best food for a newborn while simultaneously being the best medicine for all that ails a newborn. So what is breast milk? It is the amazing human-derived source of infant nutrition for the first many months of a child's life. So what does it really do? How does it reduce disease? What does exclusive breastfeeding really offer? Number one, reduces the risk of illness from most forms of bacterial and viral disease of infancy. Two, reduces rates of sudden infant death syndrome by 30%. Three, it reduces necrotizing enterocolitis, a life-threatening intestinal disease in preterm infants by 50%. Four, reduces hospital readmission rates for preterm infants during the first year of life. Five, better neural development outcomes. Six, infant mortality rates are reduced by 21%. Seven, provides protection against the development of allergies, especially with strong family histories of atopic or allergic disease. Eight, reductions in inflammatory bowel disease and celiac disease. Nine, reductions in autoimmune disease, diabetes, and other forms of cancer. 10, reductions in metabolic diseases and excess weight gain, including metabolic syndrome, and much more. So the big question is, if there was a drug that could do all of this, would there be a parent on earth that would not give it to their child at birth? I think not. Yet, we see parents every day in clinic and the hospital choosing to use a cow milk-based formula instead. Is it a lack of knowledge, convenience, 
difficulty with breastfeeding, socioeconomic pressure-based, or some other reason? The answer that the answer is that it doesn't really matter why the choice is made. We're not going to judge the choice so much as continue to do our job to counsel mothers regarding the scientific truths of nursing human milk as opposed to formula. It is not an equal situation. An infant is gaining metabolic programming from mom via this breast milk. This is to say that the child learns epigenetically and nutritionally from mother's milk what the outside world is going to look like. Is it feast? Is it famine? Is it cold? Is it warm? This is happening real time as mom consumes a certain local diet and experiences her world and has her worldview. These signaling mechanisms are critical to human adaptability and survival. Without these signals, I believe that the non-breastfed children will lose out on the ability to have a more nuanced, adaptable approach to health. The key word there is adaptable. They are beholden to the constant macro and micronutrient makeup of the milk, as well as the slow evolution of what is added back to it based on the molecular understanding of what is breast milk. What do we know about the differences of these two milk types? Human milk is dynamic on a minute-to-minute and day-to-day basis, which is not so for formula. Human milk is plastic and capable of responding to external forces in the environment by the mammary gland's ability to change the levels of hormones, macro and micronutrient makeup, and immune factors to give the infant a selective survival advantage in whatever environment the maternal child diet is found in. Formula has no ability for change. It is a static calorie source without any ability to follow the child's needs and also cannot affect immune function in a positive way. Human milk has two classes of protein, casein and whey. The casein protein curdles in the stomach when acid mixes with it. Whey remains as a liquid in the stomach and is easier to digest. Breast milk is composed of between 50 and 80% whey, depending on the date postpartum. The whey to casein ratio in human milk fluctuates between 70 to 30 and 80 to 20 in early lactation, decreases to 50-50 in late lactation. Cow's milk formula, on the other hand, has a whey protein component of only 18%. Thus, cow's milk formula is 82% casein, which is much higher than human milk and is much harder to digest compared to human milk. We are also seeing this play out in clinic all the time when children struggling with immunologically tolerating the casein protein. They present colically and congested with loose green stools, reflux, and eczema of the skin. Removal of the dairy protein is curative. Other proteins present in breast milk include lactoferrin and lysozyme, which prevent the growth and colonization of bacteria that are pathogenic, which in turn reduces intestinal inflammation while also preventing illness. The maternally derived secretory IgA antibody inhibits bacterial growth while sitting inside the mucous layer of the mucosal surface of the gut. These actions all have an immune balancing effect to induce tolerance to normal proteins in food and the environment, which in turn prevents allergic and autoimmune types of disease. One specific amino acid is also highlighted as a difference between milks, glutamine. Glutamine is the most abundant free amino acid and is important for providing ketoglutaric acid for the citric acid cycle, which generates our energy and ATP. This also acts as a neurotransmitter in the brain and serves as a major energy substrate for our intestinal epithelial cells to maintain a normal intestinal lining and a barrier from the bacteria to the inside world. Glutamine is critical to prevent leaky gut or intestinal permeability and inflammation. 
Glutamine abundance varies from low and early stages of colostrum to two logfold higher in the mid to late stages of the first year of life. Again, formula is a static amino acid profile that cannot adjust to the child's needs. Fats make up 4% of breast milk, of which 95% is made up of triglycerides, which is a storage form of fat. The other critical fat in the remaining percentage is the polyunsaturated fat known as PUFAs, linoleic acid and alpha-linolenic acid, the most important of which is EPA and DHA, eicosapentaenoic acid and docosahexaenoic acid, which are precursor molecules to resolvents and protectins, which decrease inflammation broadly after an insult, especially in the brain. 80% of the brain's DHA is acquired from the 26th week of gestation until birth. Premature babies lack these enzymes to convert the PUFA fats to DHA and EPA, which pose a great risk to these early newborns. Mothers provide these fats during pregnancy and through breast milk, assuming that she herself has adequate stores. Thus, it's critical that premature infants receiving some breast milk to prevent disease, like necrotizing enterocolitis from the dysbiosis. Breast milk provides over 220 milk oligosaccharides, otherwise known as HMOs. They are small sugars that are indigestible by the human infant, but are digestible by the infant's intestinal microbes, bacteria. This is an incredible evolutionary task for a mother to use her energy to make a food source for a bacteria that's roughly 15% of her breast milk composition. The reason is clear. There is a profound symbiosis between humans and their intestinal microbiome, the bacteria. As discussed in the podcast with Dr. Shafazada, the specific intestinal microbes that are present in the intestines will dictate which HMOs are metabolized and thus conferring health benefits to the child. Breast milk is loaded with diverse HMOs and are giving a child the best health outcomes. Formula has recently added only two of these HMOs out of the 220 in order to try and meet some scientific health understanding. Thus, with a lack of diversity, it is only a matter of time until we learn about all the missing benefits of the other 218 or more HMOs that are in breast milk, but not in human, excuse me, not in formula. So this is not by any means an exhaustive review or view of the disparate nature between formula and breast milk. However, I hope it gives you a distinct understanding of the difference between the two, the lack of flux with formula as opposed to breast milk. Science has clearly dictated that we are, when and where possible, in our best state as children when we are breastfed. And so we should be encouraging and supporting and promoting every level of breastfeeding and mother's health nationwide, statewide, countywide, wherever you are citywide. Okay, section two, breastfeeding. I just want to share a brief story. A friend of mine recently told me that she found a two-year-old bottle of refrigerated breast milk at her house. When she analyzed it, the fat was separated from the watery milk portion. However, there was no gas indicating the presence of large amounts of bacteria and no mold visible. This is not surprising, again, as human breast milk contains many, many, many antimicrobial proteins within it. Once sealed, the growth of microbes was minimal as perceived. Breast milk is a marvel. Now, just so everyone knows, the recommended time frame for the use of refrigerated breast milk is just four days. There's no good data that keeping it for two years is safe in any way, state, or form. This is just an anecdotal interesting story. Section three. I'm redoing this one for significance. It's from a while ago on learning and memory. We have known for a long time that memory is consolidated during the learning process through repetition associations that provide context to the memory. 
the chances are that the memory will persist if the associations are strong and the repetition is frequent. Think of your favorite song. You remember the lyrics 20 years later and often a place or and an event that was associated with it. In March's Scientific American a couple years ago, there was a full analysis of the mechanisms behind this process that demonstrate the plasticity of this event. We have long known that the brain is separated into gray and white matter areas, where the white matter gets its name because it's fatty appearance that is made up of a substance called myelin that covers the long axons, or the nerves, that provide conduction advantage to the nerve's electrical impulses that goes from one synapse to the other. This can be a long distance outside the brain, all the way down to the toe. Think about for a um, giraffe, how far that nerve will travel. The sciatic nerve in humans travels from the base of the spine to the big toe. The gray matter of the brain is where the neuron cell bodies that initiate the critical electrical impulses that allow us to move and think congregate. This white matter appearing myelin coating of the axon is at the core of the piece of learning and memory where it used to be thought of as a simple insulation. The research now has identified we have the ability to add or take away the myelin sheath layers, like rings of a tree, as needed based on memory formation. So let me take a step back. When we make a thought, an electrical impulse is sent from the neuron cell body to the terminal synapse along the axon. When the signal reaches the synapse, neurotransmitter chemicals are released, cross the gap synapse to the next neuron, where receptors pick them up, initiate the signal onward to its final destination. The myelin that covers the axon speeds up or slows down the impulse's movement based on the volume of the layers that wrap the axon. The new research has shown us that the oligodendrocyte in the brain, which controls the myelin deposition, has the ability to regulate this neurological signal speed and thus function by adding layers of myelin to specific axons based on memory needs. When a memory or nerve set is unused, the myelin will be unlayered and the memory will be reduced and ultimately pruned, making space for more and newer necessary memories. This new pathophysiology adds to the known literature that deep sleep stages cull over 80% of the synaptic connections based on a lack of need and maintains the ones that are deemed useful long-term. I have a list of a couple newsletters in the link uh, on the, the webpage for Doximo or SalisburyPediatrics.com if you want to read more because a couple of the articles are really interesting. So when we combine all this information together, the addition of myelin to improve signal transduction and function, we are beginning to see the greater picture. We can significantly improve memory over time through repetitive behaviors like rereading or replaying a song multiple times and attaching an association that makes the event strong in our psyche. Repetition associations are key. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 hours, whatever it takes you to get to mastery, will happen through this myelin development and memory con consolidation. Basically, it's just a, a function of time and repeat, time and repeat, time and repeat. The specific newsletters were Sleep Shrinks the Brain, newsletter number 20, volume 7, which was May 1st of 2017. And then there was um, some information in there by Dr. Sorelli from the journal Science, where they noted... Uh, when the brain gets cleared at night. Uh, so you can read that article. 
So simple ideas to do. Number one, no screens at the dinner table, especially when you are at a restaurant. Children do not need a device to have good behavior at a public establishment. They need love, conversation, and your time. Two, keep all devices in a main docking station in full view and never in a child's room. Definitely no TVs or screens in the bedroom. Three, enable the blue light suppressor option on all devices from 6 p.m. to 8 a.m. Four, encourage a routine at bedtime with consistent lights out time that is adjusted by age. Keep bedrooms as dark as possible to reduce melatonin production and promote sleep onset. All these things will help you establish quality memory, deposition, and pruning as necessary. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode edition for Salisbury Pediatric Newsletter, Volume 11, Issues number 48 and 50. Again, I'm your host, Dr. M. Thank you so much for your time, your patience, your listening, and your learning. Remember to hug those kids. Okay, so the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a healthcare issue or condition and does not constitute the formation of the provider-patient relationship. 